Welcome to Econa Day Unplugged. It is Tuesday, November 21st, 2017, and two days before the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. I am Ann Picker, Econa Day's Chief Economist, and with me today is Jeremy Hawkins in London and Mark Pender in the U.S. So, Jeremy, a lot on your plate today. Well, a lot of politics doing the rounds again at the moment. Um, as I'm sure people are aware, we saw the breakdown of negotiations to form a new coalition government in Germany um, taking place at the weekend. Uh, Merkel, the uh, German chancellor, hoping to achieve her fourth term in the chancellorship. Been looking to hold talks with uh, the FDP, the uh, Free Enterprise FDP Party and the Environmental Greens to go with our own conservative CDU-CSU alliance. They broke down on Sunday and it's really left Germany in a pretty well a rudderless situation as far as the government's concerned. Merkel's own grouping only won, what, 246 of the 700-odd uh, the seats needed um, it took to win the... Sorry, she only won... It's right... <coughs> Delete again. Merkel's Conservative government, she only won, what, 246 of the uh, 355 seats she needed to win um, in the elections, what, a couple of months or so ago now. So she really needs the backing of the alternative groups to secure her position. Without them, there's really just a, a couple of options. Um, firstly, she could potentially go ahead with some form of minority government, or there's going to have to be new elections. Now, Merkel herself has already expressed a dislike of the idea of heading up any kind of minority administration whatsoever. And although the German president, and it's really a Jonas will be on him to decide what actually happens here, um, has called on all the parties to renew um, negotiations and talks about forming the new government. Um, at the moment, it looks as if it is going to be the case that we'll simply have to have new elections. Um, the only other potential alternative would have been a continuation of the Grand Coalition, which is Merkel's current team um, going in with the, uh, the Social Democrats again, as has been the case for some while now. But the SPD have already ruled out that option. So it seems that we're going to be in for a period of, well, acute political uncertainty as far as Germany is concerned. Now, that, of course, as far as Europe goes, uh, means the at least the potential loss of a major stabilizing force within the Eurozone, particularly if Merkel herself has to stand down. And there's no guarantee at this stage, if there were future elections, um, that Merkel would again be nominated to, to lead the Conservative Party. Um, so we've got you know, a lot of uncertainty taking place just at a time when we've already seen this renewed shift to the right um, and indeed right across Europe and indeed you know, it's going to be a problem for the Brexit negotiations as well where we've got this extremely important EU leaders summit just what three weeks or so away ago away. Merkel has been a moderating influence in recent talks and without her participation it's going to make you know, forming any kind of agreement that much harder. So really politics weighing on the euro at the moment, not hugely so it's got to be said but nonetheless I think investors looking at it that much more cautiously now. In terms of the numbers, not too much to say in terms of the recent stuff, but with regard to this week, um, we'll get the flash November PMIs out of Eurozone major countries on Thursday. They're expected to show that economic growth for the fourth quarter 
probably not too different from the third quarter. So tracking somewhere around about a two and a half percent or so uh, season adjusted annualized rate for GDP in the current period. And that's pretty well what the ECB is looking for. Also of note on Thursday, we'll get the October ECB minutes. They'll be fleshing out the, the decision that month to, to halve mon- monthly quant- quantitative easing purchases um, from next year. Um, and people are looking there for any additional details they can glean with a view to what might happen once we get to September time and the potential end of that program. In the UK, it's pretty well all eyes on two things. One, Brexit. I think we've probably spoken enough about that, but there are increasing suspicions that the UK government will increase its offer on the Brexit bill from around £20 billion at the moment to £40 billion. And that certainly boosted speculation that perhaps they can get some kind of you know, a start of a trade deal once we get into the December leaders meeting. And otherwise, on Wednesday, we'll have the Chancellor of Exchequer Hammond presenting his budget. And that will obviously update the overall fiscal position. He's still pretty well facing this ongoing balancing act of trying to bolster what appears to be a slowing economy and yet still maintaining a sense of fiscal prudence. We know that he's going to put a lot of money into the housing market with regards to housing construction. Um, He might well have to claw that back from somewhere. But I think for for bonds in particular, they'll be looking to see whether or not he sticks with his previous manifesto promise of looking to balance the budget by 2025. The chances are if he sticks with some of the leaks we've had coming out of the potential programmes um, on Wednesday, he may well have to defer that date, which, say, for the gilt market, may not go down too well. Jeremy? Yeah. Jeremy, this is Mark. I have a question about uh, the start of a trade deal under Brexit. Um, what exactly is that? You, so there's two steps now. There's some step where um, the UK has to fork over a significant amount of money for, what, paying pensions? Uh, well, that's right. Uh, yeah, a lot of outstanding obligations that the UK currently has um, because it's part of the, you know, it's part of the European Union. And these obligations are laid down on a multi-year basis. So just because we'll be leaving in 2019, at least presumably, it doesn't end those obligations. Because so you'll already- still be. You'll still be funding uh, pensions for European government workers? We will be for a, for a period of time, probably through to uh, 2021, which is the and end of the current budget what period. Is this- and then what is the trade deal and why does one depend on the other? And, and Well, yeah. ostensibly, the key thing now for the UK and what everyone over here, British industry, like MAD, is calling for is some kind of protection of the current free trade arrangement we have with the European Union bloc. Now, of course, as far as the EU is concerned, if you want to have a free trade arrangement with us and enjoy the benefits that all the EU members do when they trade amongst each other, you've got to be part of the European Union. If you don't want to be part of the European Union, then we're not going to be prepared to give you any kind of you know, good trade trade negotiations mm-hmm. unless you're prepared to pay for it. And the big sort of mm-hmm. you know, the, the ongoing battle at the moment is just how much the UK should be paying. And mm-hmm. whether or not this this touted forty billion pound offer that the government over here may make um, was, as we go into this December EU leaders meeting is going to be enough. I mean that still remains to be seen. But until that's cleared, the risk is that there will be no trade agreement whatsoever, and then it's back to this you know the big worry about the hard Brexit. So it, uh, as far as free trade goes, the UK enjoys uh, what level of free trade with Europe entirely well, free. Yeah, most of it is zero percent because we have complete hmm, free trade arrangement. And, and you, you want to keep some degree of this? 
we, well, as far as UK industry is concerned, they want to keep as much of that as they possibly can. Because uh-huh. the EU is by far and away our most important well, trading it, partner. It does make you want to ask the question, why did you leave Brexit, and the, leave the UK, and the, I mean, the Europe in the first place, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's another story, but it comes down to, I suppose, the polarization of the British electorate at the moment. Thank you, Jeremy. Mark, what's new? Uh, what's new? Well, uh, I, I guess uh, Janet Yellen is not new. Janet Yellen has um, resigned, uh, will resign her position from the board uh, on the uh, Appointment of Jerome Powell, which is still subject to Senate approval, but there's probably, uh, which is very, very likely, and uh, which leaves four spaces open on the Fed board, which is a an interesting uh, anomaly. And uh, that that's it, four empty seats of seven, correct? That's right. Okay. <laughs> And that puts uh, the emphasis on the regional presidents, which also have four. Um, but uh, I don't think it's going to have any policy uh, issues. But it does raise the question or not whether it's going to have any effect on their ability to supervise and um, uh, reform or uh, their uh, banking policies. Mark, but, sorry, yes. can I just quickly ask, has it ever, if, if we actually get down to three, has it ever been that low before? Boy, no. that's a good question. I don't think so. I, nothing that I've ever seen. No, from what I've seen, that's the lowest ever. And remember, this is all due to the uh, Republican intransigence during the Obama era, when, when the Republicans declined to fill those seats. And now that has moved uh, kind of in slow motion here we've had Quarles, we've had one appointment, and now we're going to have Jerome Powell, but he was already on the board. So there's still all these empty seats. And looking at the regional uh, participants in this year, there's 12 uh, banks, 12 regional banks. Uh, the governors are set in Washington. Uh, the 12 uh, presidents are set um, throughout the country. There's 12 of them. They rotate on the board, uh, the FOMC voting board. Um, William Dudley, who's also announced his retirement mid-next year, is uh, from the New York Fed. The New York Fed always has a position on there because of their status with the with the money desk. Um, the participants this year are going to be Rosengren from Boston, who's kind of a, a dove, uh, moderate, very much like uh, Jerome Powell, I think. Evans, Charles Evans from Chicago, who's a very, very strong dove. And when, when we say dove and hawk, what we're talking about is a preference toward employment, um, Janet Yellen definitely uh, showed her uh, strongest concern for employment, and it's important to point out as she's leaving, she took office with unemployment around 7%, and she always made a refrain in all her policy uh, statements about talking about bringing discouraged workers in, and uh, she got employment under her leadership down to 4%, which is quite a, you know, uh, something to say, and um so anyway, so Evans is very much on the side of employment as opposed to worrying about inflation. Uh, as opposed to Esther George, she's also participating, and she's very, very hawkish, always worried about inflation. Um, but I'm not sure inflation is going to play much uh, role anymore because employment has gotten to so such a full uh, level by all indications that um, th- those who want to be in the workforce apparently are in the workforce. Uh, for, uh, so there's really not that that many people who are discouraged to bring back in, which really uh, pushes the question, uh, forces the question of inflationary 
uh, problems. So I think that the Fed will be moving to a hawkish um, uh, perspective. I, and I think that that's what we're seeing right now in the two-year Treasury yield, which is climbing very sharply. And uh, if we do, uh, I think it was about 175 last time, at 1.75% last time I looked at it. And um, that could easily, I think, shoot to 2% on any kind of a big inflation report, which we really haven't had. But should we have something like that, the perspective could change very rapidly. And another, I think, th important thing for the Fed to talk about um, or may talk about, and I've seen policymakers in Europe beginning to talk about, and that is uh, the level of asset prices, which is code for st uh, stock market bubble. And uh, right, you know, right now the Dow is about up 20% um, year to date. The NASDAQ is now approaching 30%. It's Tuesday, November 21, and the markets are rallying again, really without any kind of news. Um, and this is separating. This is a dislocation now. If you want to just compare with GDP, maybe running at 2.5%, 3%, add on inflation. Uh, GDP is inflation adjusted. Maybe add on a point and a half, uh, two points on inflation. Maybe you're talking about 5% at the most. And unless there is some expectation of enormous uh, growth in the coming years, uh, that would be based on policy implementation, but we really haven't had any of that. We may get a tax cut, but it's still very much up in the air. Uh, so these questions have to – and uh, financial stability is one of the mandates of the kind of the third mandate, if you will, of the Federal Reserve. And uh, it could be in it could be in jeopardy if we uh, if uh, the stock market does prove this uh, big rush does prove to be uh, 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 you know a bubble. And it was interesting things to talk about is um, Schiller, who uh, uh, is an economist, famous economist. That's a case Schiller, house price index, for instance, has done a lot of work on the role of sentiment in crashes. In fact, he ties the uh, advent of the printing press to the beginning of financial calamities. So there is a, you know, when people start talking, then it becomes a possibility. Then there's the other angle, and that's uh, available credit. And um, Galbraith did a lot of work on this, and he came up with the line, you know, crash is possible when the last available dollar is invested I think that's a good explanation for the last crisis. We don't really see any credit crises now, but we didn't then either. Thanks, Mark. We'll find out some more next week. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>